Shopping malls are not doing super well here in the United States at the moment. For younger listeners of the show, I should probably explain that a shopping mall is a place where people used to go to hang out and buy things. Great big buildings filled with food and drink offerings and dozens or hundreds of stores and kiosks offering everything from household goods to sunglasses to electronics to graphic t-shirts and bed linens. Young people in particular would hang out at these massive consumption hubs, window shopping, gorging on unhealthy snacks, and generally engaging in the free market in one of numerous available ways. There were a lot of ways to spend money, and this milling about was often encouraged as a result of that. More time spent wandering the mall meant more money spent in all of those stores. Malls were the original American third space. Not home, not school but a generally well-maintained space where you could get together with your friends, hang out, and buy stuff that you probably didn't need. Now, I don't know if you've been to a mall recently, but things have changed pretty radically in the past decade or so. The last mall that I visited was a hollowed-out husk of its previous glory. The expansive, mostly empty parking lot looked like something out of a post-apocalyptic film, and new, mostly experience-based businesses were opening up in the steeply discounted real estate that had become available. At first slowly, and then as the anchor stores, the Macy's, the JCPenney's, the Dillard's, as they all left, so too did the Gadzooks, the Radio Shacks, the Brookstones. And instead, now there are a few recently installed arcades, a few optometrist offices, a couple of escape rooms. The previously manned hallway kiosks are now more frequently booked by billboard-like advertisements and small, lonely collections of gumball and candy machines. Many of the systems that initially allowed malls to flourish in the United States came into existence in the last 40 years or so, which parallels the upward trajectory of popularity that these hubs enjoyed. The ATM, for instance, the automatic teller machine, which allows you to insert your bank card and take cash from your bank account remotely, that only arrived in its nascent form in the late 60s and early 70s, and didn't become popular until the 80s. Credit cards also became popular around this same time. They had been in existence in various forms from the late 50s onward, but because of a change in laws, particularly those that allowed banks to offer high-interest cards to more people at a lower risk to themselves, and another that emerged around the same time that allowed banks to send credit card offers to anyone of legal age through the U.S. postal system. As a result of those variables, the use of these cards and purchasing things on credit ballooned. The confluence of having a cool place to hang out filled with things to buy and new technologies that allowed you to easily get cash or buy things on credit led to a fairly explosive sales opportunity. Malls boomed in popularity, reaching their pinnacle in the early 2000s, about a decade after the opening of the Mall of America, which, when it opened in 1992, was the largest mall in the world, and which still today is the largest in the U.S. in terms of floor area, the fifth largest in North America in terms of leasable real estate, and the twelfth largest in the world overall. Modern malls, often called shopping malls, are generally distinguished from other sorts that have been built over the years 
by their large parking lots, available to help them serve a large, often very suburban audience, and their enclosed spaces, with all the stores and the walkways between them, contained within the same building, and by the fact that the whole of the mall is generally owned by just one company. The stores rent the individual commercial spaces, but the mall itself is owned by a single entity. This modern model is a variation on a theme that flourished in Europe and the UK for a long while, which is often referred to as a shopping arcade. And a shopping arcade is similar to a modern shopping mall in that it is made up of a bunch of stores located within a contained walkable area, but different in that the stores are often independently owned by their proprietors. The walkways between them are generally uncovered in the open air, not contained within a building, and in that they are generally less accessible via car, as they were more likely to have been built before the boom in automobiles and suburban living setups, and are therefore accessible mostly by mass transit and walking and cycling. They were built more to serve a particular neighborhood than an entire region. Strip malls occupy a space between modern shopping malls and traditional shopping arcades. They share many of the same traits as enclosed malls in that they house a variety of shops, typically have at least one anchor store, like a Walmart, a Target, a Home Depot, and are often, but not always, owned by one real estate entity, with the individual stores rented out to the brands in question. They're also generally attached to a large parking lot and built along some major traffic artery. They're not built with one particular neighborhood or region in mind, like a shopping arcade. They are intended to capture all possible customers driving in from any part of the city or surrounding area, including the suburbs. The strip mall model has actually fared better over the past decade when compared to the enclosed higher-end malls in part because they offer lower rents and more favorable locations in terms of being able to just stop in rather than heading to a larger mall as a destination. There is less to see and do at these larger destinations, but you might pass by a particular store on the way home from work. But they've also done decently well because they tend to be viable options financially for a wider variety of local businesses in particular that would not be able to afford space in a mall that has to keep the air conditioning or heat turned on year-round, climate controlling a huge internal space, and maintaining security and safety and cleanliness throughout that space. It's just immensely cheaper to ensure that all indoor real estate is occupied by money-making entities and to provide a central parking lot, but nothing beyond that. There are sidewalks connecting the stores in these strip malls typically, but that's about it. Popular gathering spaces, these are typically not. Most retail, of course, has pivoted toward e-commerce since the turn of the 21st century, and that trend ballooned from 2007 onward when mobile internet really started to take off and more people, including those who had never before had any interest in owning a computer or getting online, suddenly had mini computers in their pockets in the shape of their smartphones. Some of those very same services that allowed the mall to explode in popularity back in the 80s and 90s, the modern credit card system in particular, but also some of the technologies that allowed ATM to function reliably, they contributed to the mall's eventual degradation. Electronic fund transfer protocols enabled online money transfer services like PayPal and Venmo and allowed folks to manage all of their money digitally, from having their paychecks auto-deposited into their accounts every month to paying their bills without ever signing a check. 
ATM technologies like the development of PIN numbers and similar security measures also found their way into the standards that were eventually implemented for the online economy. And although Amazon, the largest internet retailer in the world in terms of revenue and market capitalization, and second only to Chinese company Alibaba in terms of total sales, didn't make huge waves when it first arrived on the scene back in 1994, as those pieces began to fall into place, laying the groundwork for secure, reliable e-commerce systems, Amazon and a few other companies were there, ready and waiting for more people to choose the convenience and options enabled by the internet over those offered by the shared air-conditioned interiors, large parking lots, and array of stores offered by their local shopping mall. The market for shopping mall real estate imploded shortly thereafter, and the market for online e-commerce exploded, and that backbone collection of technologies evolving slowly but surely and melding along the way with certain often quite small-seeming pieces of legislation, those are a big part of why. There's one more piece of this story, though, one more element that blended with those others that made e-commerce a thing, and the lack of it is what delayed the growth of the internet early on. And what causes some people to be skeptical of all this e-business even today. And that's what I'd like to talk about today. That last element. Trust. And how having more or less of it within a system can dramatically influence the shape and success of that system. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today is actually a piece of culture writing, a pseudo-editorial that is well-researched, but definitely not unbiased. And it comes from GQ magazine. The piece is entitled, Goop, Trump, and the Lucrative Assault on Truth. I decided to start with this piece because it cleanly aggregates a few separate stories into a relatively simple package and labels that package in a way that I think helps us get right to the meat of the issue that I want to discuss, the issue of trust. The crux of this article is that public distrust in authority is flagging, even as a new breed of influencers steps into the limelight and cashes in on that shift, as they swoop in and scoop up that authority, basically. For a variety of reasons, the solid, reliable sources that we used to reference when we were trying to ascertain truth have become less trustworthy-seeming, and that can leave us feeling rudderless and looking for someone to step in and provide us with answers, with truth, with a worldview that makes us feel good, makes us feel like we know things, like we understand what's happening around us. Unfortunately, this is a recipe for misinformation and misunderstanding, for the plague-like spread of nonsense facts that are nonetheless perceived by many to be gospel truth, and for the elevation of fraudsters who frame their narratives in a compelling, contagious way. And just as unfortunately, most of the available solutions to this issue require that we take more personal responsibility, rather than there being some kind of reliable, external, quick fix. And selling personal responsibility to a broad swath of people who can't always be trusted to not eat Tide Pods or set themselves on fire for YouTube views is anything but a sure bet. This makes for an uncomfortable information atmosphere because it means even if you're relatively well-informed and put a decent amount of effort into remaining so, 
it is still incredibly easy to be misled. It's really difficult to know who to trust. And that's the backbone of this entire problem, in my mind. Trust and the lack thereof. Now let's start out by talking for a moment about high trust and low trust societies. Slightly different definitions are thrown around for these terms depending on what you're reading, who wrote it, the specifics of the subject matter, and the bias behind the piece. But in general, a high trust society is one in which strangers tend to more readily trust each other, and a low trust society is the opposite. Now this seems like a super simple, almost meaningless concept at first, I know, but think about what trust between strangers enables. It allows folks who have never met each other before to do business with each other, without worrying that the person on the other end of that transaction will rip them off, or sell them something other than what they claim they're selling. It allows people to feel comfortable exchanging money, knowing that the money they are exchanging will be honored by everyone equally, that you won't encounter someone who will not take your greenbacks and who will instead demand some other regional currency instead of the national currency you're carrying or they will value them differently than the way that you value them. Without social trust, issuing credit would be a fool's errand, because you'd be forwarding money to someone who might just run off with it, rather than paying it back with interest. Without social trust, investments would be largely too risky to bother with, as the money that you paid for a percentage of that business or that parcel of land would be just as likely to disappear into someone else's pocket as it would be to net you the thing that you thought you were buying. And lacking social trust, anyone stronger or better armed than you could take anything that you own on a whim. And assets would cease to have as much value as a consequence. They would need to be continuously guarded and defended, lest some passerby decide to take your car or your furniture or your dog for herself. So this sort of trust allows us to issue credit, to make investments, to acquire assets, to own things. It allows us to conduct business with each other, to exchange value, to work for someone else, and to expect that almost always we will be paid for that labor as agreed. And it allows us, at perhaps the most basic level, to walk past a stranger on the street and assume that, except in very rare circumstances, that stranger will not rob us or otherwise attack us in some way. The sort of trust that we're talking about here is not the type that you might have in a best friend or a family member. This is not a blood bond. It's not something that you'd take a bullet for or trust them to take a bullet for you. But it's enough to enable a great deal of what we take for granted in the modern world, at least in the countries that have it. Unfortunately, we have plenty of examples of what happens in low-trust societies, where this social expectation either never fully developed or at some point, for some reason, diminished to the point where every citizen who might like to engage in such trade, to trust others in this fundamental way, eventually decide it's not worth the risk. We fall into a kind of game theory hell in such places, as every person is constantly wary of every other person, knowing full well that they may attempt to take their stuff to rip them off, to present faulty or fraudulent goods instead of what they purport to be selling. They might just attack you because they can steal your dog, because who's going to stop them? When that common understanding disappears, the economy weakens. It shrinks down to something fairly medieval and meager, something that doesn't require trust to operate. 
which means a lack of reliable credit, of assets, of payment methods, of structures that punish bad behavior. Now, some definitions of this concept focus more on the general vibe in these two types of locations. Maybe a high-trust society is one in which you can leave your wallet on the ground and come back the next day to pick it up. No one would dream of taking something that was not theirs, even if the opportunity should present itself to do so and get away with it legally. Other definitions, though, allow for the less black-and-white reality that there are bad actors within any system. So a blend of law enforcement and legal systems are necessary. Even when general social sentiment says one thing, there will be times where it's ideal to have law and justice step in and set someone straight, lest society comes to tolerate such things, eventually resulting in a social structure ruled by the physically strong and morally corrupt. Several post-Soviet satellites back in the early 90s were famously low-trust societies. And the reason they fell so hard into this situation was that even though there was rampant corruption and abuse within the Soviet system, it was still a system that those living within it had come to know and understand. Yes, they would often say things worked one way and they actually operated another way, but everyone knew that. And as a consequence, when you bought your fruit on the black market, it was understood that you got what you paid for, and everyone understood that. Yes, it was technically illegal, but this was the way of things, and that common understanding bred a sort of trust, and led to a situation where the black market dealers were known and trusted entities in general. Pull away those familiar social structures, though, and you end up with something entirely different. The oligarchs swooped in after the fall of the Soviet Union and set up a new game where the old one was once played. And this version of corruption was different than the last one. The rules that everyone had learned to play by were no longer applicable, and that led to a generation of people for whom their neighbors' intentions and ambitions were opaque. They didn't know what the person on the other side of any transaction was after or liable to do, and as such, less business was conducted. And that which was conducted was done far less smoothly. There were higher operational costs for every transaction because that other person's motives and social norms had become less predictable. Democracy and capitalism fell into place in a lot of these countries during that time period, which was a significant upgrade to the way things were done previously in a whole lot of ways. Under a fully centralized gulag state system, a whole lot of things sucked, and those things, some of them, were improved by this new type of government and economic system. But the benefits were not everything that they could have been. Because neighbor no longer trusted neighbor, and the underpinnings of society in some of these locations, ground to a near standstill as a consequence. A whole lot of strongman governmental systems are implemented and sustained as a consequence of this sort of setup. Low trust often equals better outcomes for those with the fewest scruples, as they are willing to take advantage of that confusion for personal gain, and are more capable of manipulating all those unknowns by enforcing their own take on reality upon the citizenry. I spoke about the shift from malls and in-person shopping setups to that of e-commerce in the intro because that shift was held up. It was slowed down for a very long time relative to the pace at which everything else was moving, at least, like the technologies involved, because the online world was considered to be a low-trust society. 
You may or may not remember this state of affairs depending on your age, but when I was initially exploring the online world back in the day, puttering around on America Online in the 90s, few people could imagine doing business on the internet. I mean, you could maybe imagine it, but why would you take the risk? It just did not make sense because there didn't seem to be any way to keep people honest or reason to believe the person on the other end of that transaction would do well by you. You might send your money via the postal service, or you might wire money from your bank to some stranger that you have never met in person, and then you might never receive the thing you thought you were paying for. Who could know what motivations these shadowy strangers from the internet might have? In the years since, one of the most impressive achievements for the online world, I would argue, was putting into place structures that have served as trellises upon which that trust could sprout and grow. Some of those structures were rules and regulations that implemented punishments for those who chose to misbehave in an attempt to make it costly for perpetrators and therefore not worth their effort to victimize people in this way on the internet. But others were as simple as creating communities where other people, real people, with real lives, just like you and me, had become increasingly visible. We could see their profiles, their reviews. We could more easily send emails and instant messages. We could chat in real time back and forth. We could Skype with them. That infrastructure helped build trust in the online world. And even though, just like in any society, there are still bad actors in that space looking for easy marks, the online world today is a place where people mostly deal honestly with each other, which is no small feat considering how many different people from how many different cultures and backgrounds and levels of trust within their own societies are involved in this shared community. So while living in a high-trust society doesn't mean that other people will always behave the way you want them to, it does mean that you will generally know how they will behave. Their behaviors will be more predictable, as will yours to them which is unto itself quite a valuable thing, as again, it allows you to do business with them, to understand what is safe and what is not, and to understand, for instance, whether that car in front of you will stop at a red light or not, whether they will stop or slow down for pedestrians, or whether they'll speed right by. This term, high trust, does not imply any sort of moral, ideal, or standard, but instead refers to a consistency of behavior reinforced by both social norms and expectations, and by laws and other such guidelines that emerge along the way. Interestingly, as the online world has become more trustworthy, that trust has at times seeped back out into the real world. Being able to pay for things digitally, using a phone, and using either payment services like Venmo or pseudo-currencies like M-Pesa, folks who previously would have been hesitant to deal with each other, even in person, but particularly across town or in the neighboring country, are able to do so with relative confidence in how that transaction will pan out. There are rudimentary protections in place with these services, but they also benefit from these structures that I mentioned before, which allow us to feel like we are all on the same boat, that we are less likely to be scammed by another human being who is across from us and on that same M-Pesa network. It just feels much more reliable in a whole lot of ways than meeting up with a stranger and exchanging cash without any of those social structures and guarantees in place. Trust can breed trust, and it can spread the benefits of high-trust societies. 
In a lot of ways, the United States and other liberal democratic countries' efforts to spread democracy and capitalism around the world have been an effort to make this so worldwide, to increase the amount of trust that we have in each other, which in turn reduces conflict and unpredictability. We know how everyone will behave toward everyone else, at least when it comes to exchanging value, and that increases the potential for wealth for everyone involved. Unfortunately, though, distrust also breeds distrust, and it can spread just as easily, if not even more easily, than the opposite. That's kind of what this article from GQ addresses. It discusses how public figures like Donald Trump and Gwyneth Paltrow, although they are very different people, they are both making use of an increasing distrust of experts and arbiters of truth to carve out their own intellectual fiefdoms while reinforcing their audience size and authority within their audience by more or less declaring themselves the sole arbiters of truth. In practice, this means building brands that put them at the center of their audience's belief systems. They're not just right, they are the only people who can be trusted to tell you what is right. Everyone else is out to get you, or trying to trick you, or prejudiced in some way against you and your truth-telling overlord. For Trump, this means pretty much anyone who criticizes him or anything he does or anything he's ever done is a liberal hack. They are trying to tear him down, they cannot be trusted, should not be listened to, and are quite possibly part of a conspiracy to destroy all that is good in the world. And what is good in this context is what Trump says is good. Now, he is not the only politician to do this, but he has arguably been the most successful at it. For Paltrow, the enemy is generally the scientific and medical community, the people and organizations that want to tell her what is safe and healthy based on research. From her standpoint, and this is the narrative promoted by her brand, Goop, she is a wealthy, successful person who therefore knows things about things and who is in a position to know more about all of these things than the rest of us. Because just look at how luxurious her lifestyle is. And therefore, if you also want to get a piece of that, if you want to be happy and healthy and successful like her, you will need to agree that medical research and common sense are nonsense. You must trust in the spirituality-branded woo that she sells at high prices to people who likewise feel either confused or oppressed by groups that want to tell us what is real and what is make-believe. And again, she is not the only celebrity, the only guru, the only huckster to do this, but she has been by far one of the most successful. Now, these two personalities take similar approaches to reinforcing their hold over their fan base, and although, again, their storylines and methods take very different shapes, what they both come back to is a strategy oriented around delegitimizing those who would question their authority. Now, this is not a new strategy. Countless religious leaders and politicians and other ignorant but popular celebrities have done exactly the same thing over the years and have caused varying degrees of damage as a consequence. But the impact of these types of efforts are amplified today, right now, at this very moment, because we normal people on the other end of those messages are, broadly speaking, ill-equipped we are not in a great position to consistently and reliably distinguish fact from fiction. We face a daily deluge of information from a variety of sources, many of which themselves are somewhat hit and miss in terms of legitimacy. And the tools available to fraudsters and liars to promote their messages have become increasingly more powerful at the same time. 
So we are living through a moment in time where our communication tools have evolved way beyond the average person's ability to keep up with them, to know how to use them well. Our ability to broadcast has overwhelmed our ability to fact-check and to understand. And during a period where both scientific and journalistic establishments, two of the most traditionally reliable sources of truth, have been hobbled by reputational and infrastructural damage, leaving them in many cases unable to suitably fight back against entities like Trump and Paltrow, entities that intentionally and skillfully diminish trust at a moment where we could really use a great deal more of it. Both journalism and science in their purest, most refined and platonic forms, are absolutely wonderful things. And the reality of both actually lives up to those expectations a shocking amount of the time. Historically, especially in modern history, as science has become more formalized and journalism has grown into a reality-establishing service, rather than what amounted to politically slanted tabloids, as was the case for most of its history, both establishments have been pretty damn great in recent history. And that's good because you can only really have democracy and other systems that take the will of the people into consideration rather than only the will of the ruling elite like monarchs and aristocrats and oligarchs and warlords. These democracy and democracy-like systems are only possible when you have an educated, informed populace. It would be kind of silly to have people vote on something about which they don't know a single thing, for instance. The wisdom of crowds only lives up to its name if the crowds in question have a reliable method of ascertaining truth. You could ask the whole population of the United States how to cure cancer or manage the monetary resources of a local township and get mostly nonsense answers. The wisdom of crowds is heavily dependent on how knowledgeable those crowds are. And as such, elections and other ballot-based endeavors are only really valuable if the people casting those ballots know something about what they are voting upon. The reason journalism and the scientific establishment has helped make systems like democracy work better is that they are flawed but improvable. Dogmatic systems, systems that are predicated on having all of the answers already and infallible opinions, or systems led by people who claim to be infallible and who have opinions, are systems that cannot easily improve. If your pontiff says that the sun and planets orbit around the earth, and science then demonstrates this almost certainly is not the case, it's easier for science to change than that supposedly infallible pontiff. Because, well, if they could be wrong about that, they could be wrong about other things as well. And that could lead their followers to question their infallibility and authority. The power of both science and journalism is that being wrong is part of the process. These are systems that have being wrong built into their DNA. So it's not just possible, but predictable that even the best, most supported information will turn out to be less than correct some of the time. And there are mechanisms that allow these structures to reorient themselves and to evolve as those new facts become available. The power to backtrack, to correct, to acknowledge having been wrong, and to then build a new understanding based on the best available, supportable, provable facts of the day is a power that authoritarians and cults of personality cannot match. Their authority is predicated on having all the answers already. And this is why, instead of ever acknowledging having been wrong, dictators like Joseph Stalin would simply change history to match what they said most recently. They would deny ever having said anything other than what they said today. 
and that to them was preferable to acknowledging having been wrong. This type of person is more likely to deny provable mistakes than to be seen as having said something incorrect. And this whole concept would be kind of hilarious. It would be silly if it weren't so horrifyingly effective at times. Stalin's method for this was to edit old photos and newspapers and to destroy all books that referenced something that he did or said that was later changed for the sake of new information or a change in stance for the ruling so-called Communist Party. They would also frequently kill people who claimed that he once said something that he was now denying in order to enforce that new reality that he decided upon, upon the everyday person. Others, though, will simply deny and deny and deny, and what's really frightening about this tactic is that it often works. You could show a supporter of an authoritarian politician a video of their favored leader saying one thing, and then another of them saying something entirely different, the total opposite thing, and that supporter would be likely to justify the difference away. It's a fake video intended to make their leader look bad, or it was a turn of phrase that means something different than it seems to mean. It was just a joke, or it's an intentional misinterpretation built up by the enemy, by the other, as part of a conspiracy to hurt their leader's credibility. Research into human behavior has shown that this sort of tribalism is not just common, at times it's predictable. And this behavior, the denial of obvious provable facts in favor of one's in-group, one's leader, can actually reinforce their belief in and support of that person, that group. The decision to accept the lies over the fact-based data can cause them to double down on their allegiance to the liar. Now, part of the reason for this, it is posited, is something akin to confirmation bias blended with the sunk cost fallacy. Confirmation bias is the name for our tendency to seek out facts that support our existing beliefs and to discard those that do not, to ignore even demonstrable facts that do not align with our current worldview. And this is something that everyone does to some degree or another. It takes very active attention to your own information gathering and learning process to avoid doing this. The sunk cost fallacy is an economic term that refers to our propensity to continue investing in what we come to realize is a bad investment because we've already invested so much in it. So you get two years into a four-year degree only to realize, oh dang, I do not want to get that degree anymore. It's useless to me and what I want to do with my life. But all the same, in a lot of cases, we will nonetheless decide to finish out those last two years because even though the outcome, the purpose of getting that degree, of finishing that program, might be useless to us and might be expensive to do, We've already spent so much money and time moving in that direction. It can be almost painful to feel like we are leaving that prior investment just sitting there, incomplete, not fully realized. And so we put more money and time and effort into the thing that is now useless to us because we don't want to feel like suckers. We don't want to feel like we're just giving time and money away, even though our priorities have changed. Now, the way these concepts apply to this topic is that we may be exposed to new information that causes us to question our faith, our belief in our chosen leader, our tribe, our guru. But then, despite that information, despite having clear evidence that we should question this leader of ours, we then decide to reinforce our loyalty in that belief or that leader, even as we are presented with these facts that indicate that we shouldn't. Our decision to ignore this data, this demonstrable truth, 
makes us feel even more invested in that cause. And as such, we become more loyal, not less, because we have become so invested that we're denying reality and we're denying the authority of traditional sources of trusted information that have proven to be very trustworthy in the past. We are denying all of that in our typical structure of establishing fact-based reality in favor of our chosen tribe. It's a bit like committing to telling anyone who will listen that your favorite football team is the best football team, and they are definitely going to win every match they play, even though all of the data, including your own past experience going to their games, indicates the opposite. You do it not because it's true, in the sense that most facts are true. You do it because it shows loyalty to the cause. Being willing to say that about your sucky team shows your commitment to the tribe above all else. Above even logical fact-based thinking about the world, it shows that you value your allegiance to that tribe above your ability to think independently and critically. You have sunk so much into this belief that you are willing to be literally wrong, factually wrong, to live in a dream world in order to be correct in your allegiance to this group that you are a part of. It's notable that low-trust societies have been highly dependent on familial relationships. When you feel that you cannot trust anyone, you surround yourself with kin and perceived kin, that being the only bond, the biological bond, that can feel real and tangible and somewhat reliable in that type of atmosphere. Look at how mafias operate. Look at how dictators operate. Look at how rural politics and businesses operate. You'll often see the same model across the board. Low general trust in society leads to kin-based structures because we don't feel that we have any other option. No one else will behave in a predictable manner in our estimation, at least until such a point that high trust encouraging structures can emerge. But in some cases, these kin-based low trust structures can be sufficiently entrenched that they keep any other systems from emerging, because those in power will often do what they can to maintain the status quo in which they have achieved that power. Any change could be a threat to their favored dynamic, the one in which they are in charge. Now, I'm sure you can draw your own conclusions about what that means for these other types of leaders, these gurus and tribe-building politicians who thrive in low-trust environments. If these are the environments in which they flourish, well, it certainly benefits them to keep high-trust entities from growing into anything that would be a threat to their dominance. They need to keep the people in their tribe as ignorant as possible, otherwise their power structure falls apart. And at the very base of that low-trust pyramid is a focus on number one, on oneself rather than anyone else. After all, why should you care about anyone else, care about their supposed needs, their well-being, when you don't know whether they would care about you and your well-being? Why should you invest your resources in them and their very existence when you have no way of knowing whether they are adding their fair share into the pot as well? You can see this attitude in the ideologies and lifestyles of authoritarians, of cult leaders, and of powerful influencers of all kinds worldwide. They are more than willing to hamstring other sources of facts because it allows them to build and maintain control. They are more than willing to allow others to be hurt, to destroy beneficial systems, to let the world burn, 
if it means that they are able to reallocate more resources and power to themselves and to their kin. The idea that dissembling these structures could be harmful does not occur to them. What's important is maintaining their position, their power, and reorganizing the world into something that orbits around them and their needs and their priorities. In their minds, they are behaving rationally. And frankly, by the standards of a lot of cultures, I'm not so sure that they are wrong in thinking that. If you are told that your opinion, your perception, is just as good as demonstrable fact, and especially if society seems to reinforce this idea by rewarding you with money, with power, with privilege, with a massive megaphone that allows you to spread your influence and reinforce it further. I mean, why wouldn't you think that? Why would you not think that you have all the answers and that everyone else's reality pales in comparison to yours? There are plenty of people with that type of power who do not do this, of course, but at a certain level of success, I imagine you have to work pretty hard to avoid being surrounded by yes-men who will keep you inside of a self-reinforcing bubble that positions you at the center of all things. And many of the tools, the technologies and systems that we have built in recent years have helped further solidify and opacify those bubbles ensuring that even those of us without the wealth and fame of a Trump or a Paltrow can build our own little worlds, cut off from any data that might tell us something that would challenge our worldview, that would dissuade us from or make us question our existing biases. Ideally, of course, we have more systems that encourage self-reflection and internal questioning, more systems that passively expose us to outside ideas, and not just in contexts that encourage us to be outraged and to double down on our current existential paradigms. Ideally, we would support the development of such tools and move away from systems of incentives that encourage the opposite. Advertising-based models, for instance, can lead to networks where we are fed a steady diet of feel-good and anger-stoking content that does not help us grow, that doesn't tell us anything new, that doesn't challenge us, because the data seems to indicate that being challenged feels too much like work, and that causes us to turn our attention away from these platforms and toward something else, something easier. And that is something that an ad-based system cannot abide. As I mentioned before, a lot of the impetus for change rests within us, individually, before anything else is likely to happen within our communities and systems. These larger structures are emergent from us. They are reflections of our behaviors and priorities. And if we prioritize quick fixes and surges of dopamine over longer-lasting forms of fulfillment and growth, of deciding to try to interpret the world in a way that feels good to us rather than trying to see reality more clearly, then it's incredibly unlikely that the right tools for this moment that counter some of the worst outcomes of these new capabilities will arise in time. And we may miss our window to correct for them, to swap out ignorant opinion in favor of supportable fact. We may come to forget why we should even care about such things, despite the fact that the underpinnings of everything that we enjoy, all of the understandings and technologies that we have come to take for granted, all of those things are dependent on knowing things, on being able to say, this is true, this is not true, to a degree that we can go on and make predictions, we can build things based on that knowledge. We know what will happen because we understand the context in which we are performing a certain action. 
tribal affiliation, though, cheering for our team, no matter what, that hits us where we are weakest. It's a primal desire to feel like we are a part of something bigger than us and to have an other to root against, just as we have our own people to cheer for. We are not just fighting against authoritarian manipulation here. We are fighting against elements of human nature. I tend to think that there are ways that we can harness those same biological predilections for positive ends if we choose to, if we are particularly clever about the new systems that we build and the evolutions that we stimulate within our existing systems. But in the near future, I'm guessing that we will each individually have to take responsibility for our own thinking and our own understanding and perception of reality as it seems unlikely that anyone else will do it for us in a way that leaves us more knowledgeable and more capable rather than the opposite. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Capitalism Without Capital. And this is by two economic researchers, Jonathan Haskell and Stian Westlake. And this is an interesting book. It's not anti-capitalistic. It's not something that is discussing getting rid of capitalism, as might first be implied by the title. It's about how capitalism operates and how it's being changed by the shift from physical capital, physical assets, to intangible assets. And what that means, in essence, is talking about assets that are difficult to measure, like the systems and brands and research and development that are done by companies, and then how those intangible assets differ from traditional tangible assets like buildings and desks and industrial equipment. And importantly, it also addresses how these concepts, this changeover, how they mess with our ability to predict things about the economy, which leaves us prone to making incorrect regulatory and investment decisions, but it also increases things like inequality and other undesirable outcomes, because in the difference in how these types of assets behave and how we use them and the nature of them. There was a really good quote about this book from The Guardian and I think it was in this article that I initially heard about this book. I had made a note about it last year to pick it up and read it, finally got around to it, and I think this paragraph does a good job of describing what's happening here. Quote, The authors illuminate ways in which the scale of intangibility deforms the familiar mechanisms of a market economy. An intangible digital product or process can be replicated and shared a near infinite number of times at no additional cost. This makes very rapid commercial expansion possible. It can also make it harder to protect intellectual property rights. This is partly why the big winners are companies that control the platforms on which content is shared rather than the producers of that content. Another feature of this model is that it thrives on cross-fertilization of ideas. The potential for unforeseen lucrative synergies leads tech innovators to cluster in city hubs, of which Silicon Valley is the template. The pioneers of an intangible economy benefit from geographic intimacy, even if their work then flies weightlessly around a global network. This pattern in turn accelerates social polarization. Those with the skills to navigate the new economy gather in high-income hotspots where housing costs soar. These citadels then become unaffordable and culturally alien to those who lack the qualifications to join the higher caste. End quote. 
Now, if that concept sounds interesting to you, I recommend picking up a copy of Capitalism Without Capital by Jonathan Haskell and Stian Westlake. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you might consider signing up for my newsletter while there. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com, and you can find out more about my upcoming tour at becomingtour.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere, except Facebook, where I'm just Colin Wright. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.